Take from New Jersey, it's the SNL Nerds, a show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And today, guys, we have a, this is a special bonus episode. We're giving you some, a little extra, extra morsel, a little tasty treat here. And uh, yeah, because today we have a special guest, the former writer of SNL. He's written for Triumph, he's a hilarious comedian, and he's the co-writer of of the upcoming film, The King of Staten Island, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dave Cyrus. Hello. Woo! How are we doing? <laughs> We're doing okay, Dave. How are you doing? Like, uh, well, first, first off, how are you doing throughout this uh, this insane pandemic uh, uprising time? Like, are you are you in New York now, or? Oh yeah, I live in Brooklyn, um, which is a perfect place to be during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, it's it's been it's it's a, it's an insane time because, of course, you know, a few months ago, all I was thinking about was you know my first movie, and then it be, then we got the pandemic, and then it became just sort of adapting to that world and having to deal with you know all the precautions you have to take with me especially because uh, I'm actually I'm a caretaker for an 85 year old woman, so oh. I have oh. a lot more responsibilities when it comes to my own personal exposure. I also I'm also a hemophiliac with Lyme disease, so my own doctor has told me to be careful. But I haven't really honestly thought about that as much as just that I, that like if I take my eye off the ball for a second, grandma dies, is basically been my what I've been living the last few months. Uh, wow, so uh, so nice and relaxing. Okay, yeah, so, so there's been that to deal with, and then and and now you know the movie's coming out uh, in in a few days. Uh, whenever you guys are listening to this, but it comes out Friday, and it's been. And, and, and now, you know, because of the George Floyd protests, I've never felt so incredibly just ridiculous talking about a movie. Like, I, it's like I, I feel like such a ridiculous asshole to even try to pitch a movie during one of the most important civil rights moments in my lifetime. I mean, people are out, people are out they're protesting, they're demanding change. For police brutality and racism, it's like the last thing I ever wanted to do was say, guys, guys, I know that's important. But <laughs> Yeah. So like honestly, like I've I've actively avoided like anything related to pitching this movie. I've basically just been like, hey, look, if you want to enjoy it, God bless you. Please go ahead. It's not the most important thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. really, you know, it's because I really I've literally been saying, like, you know, if it's a choice between paying to watch my movie or donating to campaign zero, please donate. The movie will still be here when, you know, when everything's settled down and hopefully we have the changes we're, we're looking for. You can always do both too. Yeah. I mean, that would be great (laughs) in an ideal world. That's the best case scenario. Sure. Right. But I also think like in times like these, people are looking for just, you know, ways of escaping just because like mm-hmm. everything in the world is so heavy. I mean, even our podcast, like we're, we've decided to like keep it as light as possible. You know, we were like, we've been reviewing all these uh, SNL movies that are like kind of goofy comedies just because just the severity and just the heaviness of the world we're in now. People are looking for little ways to kind of escape and get out of their own heads for a little bit. So, I mean, this well, movie can help with I- that. I agree. And, and I agree with that. I think it's great that you guys are, you know, taking the time to just entertain people who are, pro- you know, it's a very stressful time for a lot of people, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, it's good that you're, you're going or you're, you're talking about the many SNL comedy movies and it's Pat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah, the, the, it's Pat. Oh, oh boy. Yeah, we we reviewed that, and uh, I, mean, I don't know if you heard the episode, but that movie was that was rough. I will be listening to it because that's I would I would like to hear more people talking about that movie. Sure. Yeah, it's it's an important movie that's that's fallen by the wayside. Boy, does Molly Shannon owe that movie a thanks. <laughs> To make sure that no, that literally no one will ever say that Superstar was the worst SNL movie. Yeah. We reviewed Superstar as well. Uh, yeah, Superstar. is not bad. I'm not only it's Pat is the only one that I would actually venture to say was like just flat out bad. Yeah, um, I mean a lot of them have problems. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of highs and lows in the SNL movie <laughs> spin-off world. But I'll tell you there are some good there are some good SNL movies that people, you know, don't give the proper like just in terms of just being funny watchable movies, you got McGruber. Yep. You you got uh, uh Lady Ladies Man is such a good movie. Ladies Man is a funny movie. My buddy Dennis McNicholas, I mean, really Ladies Man is an underrated SNL movie. Oh, I yeah. agree with that. We we both enjoyed Ladies Man as I recall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Conan's yeah. a good movie. Wayne's World, both good movies. Yeah, we reviewed them all. Night of the yeah. Roxbury, not bad. Uh, I remember that being okay. It, it didn't. It didn't quite fire on all cylinders for me, but I don't remember hating it. Yeah, it's not. It, it, it's it's watchable. It's certainly. It's not like the best one, but I would not. I would not compare it to Pat. Yeah, oh. I mean, it's, it's like it's better than say Coneheads. I would say. Oh, see, I liked Coneheads. But uh, there were, you know, but I was also a kid. I think Coneheads is a great high school movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was in my twenties when Coneheads came out, and I, I didn't watch it until we watched it for the podcast. So it was like, okay, well, this is a thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a movie you should watch when you're fifteen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. That's fair. And and there's nothing wrong with making a movie for fifteen year olds, you know? Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So, Dave, I guess this answers. I mean, you just answered the the next question I was going to ask. Uh, like, would you consider yourself an SNL nerd? Are you a big fan of the show, or did you grow up watching the show? Or like, is, is there some sketch or season or um, performer that got you into the show? Or are you, or are you more of a oh, casual I was, fan? I was. I mean, I was a big fan as a kid of the golden age that I consider. You know that the early nineties, late eighties, pretty much anything Phil Hartman was part of is, is what I consider the, the best part of that show. Um, I really, really love Phil Hartman. Um, but I also love the Will Ferrell years too. So those are the, those are the eras that I was really into when I got the job at SNL. I wasn't like, uh, I wasn't a, a giant fan. I, I didn't really watch the post Will Ferrell era as much. I honestly would only, skim the episodes for the tv funhouse segment mm. if i'm being honest okay no that's fine like the tv funhouse stuff that was i remember that being like when that first came on those tv funhouse robert smigel segments they did some seriously like edgy stuff there like some stuff like i remember like uh not too long ago i, I rewatched this one episode where it was like a sex it was a tv funhouse you know animated short where it was a play on sex in the city but it was sex in the country. And like, you know, instead of it being like four women in New York City, it was like four farm animals. And they used the audio from Sex in the City and the farm animals would get together about like, you know, their sex lives and they were all, you know, sex, they were having sex with basically like the farmer. And so it was like, it was like a whole sketch around bestiality. And I was like, oh my God. 
So, no so like you had you had a pig talking about how it didn't want to be the up the butt girl. Yeah, exactly. And then they cut to the scene with the pig and like the farmer or the farmhand, and I was like, Jesus Christ! Yeah, Robert really stretched his legs in that segment. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my favorite was the parody that they did of the uh, the old Fleischer Superman cartoons, where they did Wonder Man and they animated it as close to the style of the Fleischer Superman cartoons that they could get. Yeah, and it and was. That of course was the TV Funhouse Comedy Central show. Right, right, and 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 it was you know he was performing super deeds, but it was only in a yeah, quest yeah, yeah. to get his alter ego laid. Yep. Wonder <laughs> Man. Yes, um, you know, and that show was goddamn amazing. I, I, I think it was only six episodes, and it was just one of the funniest things that it, so, and a, a show that was completely not a success got canceled right away yet was extremely influential with shows like wonder shows and, and something that was ripped off endlessly by, you mm-hmm. know, edgy comics and like the adult swim kind of world for years. Yeah, yeah. no, it was definitely ahead of its time. Yeah. I can definitely see that too. Yeah. So, uh, well, so how did you how did you get into comedy? You, your your background is a stand up, and then you've kind of segged from that into a writing career. So tell us a little about how that uh, got all got started for you. Well, I just I was a kid with no friends, um, and I know people say that a lot. <laughs> Join the club. People, here's the thing: everyone, I the number of people who say that they didn't have any friends in high school. They were the most unpopular kid in high school. I always think I'm like, you know what? That's, it's really not possible that it's that many of you because I remember being one of like five kids in my whole high school who could, who could claim that. Whereas everyone seems to act like, usually what I'll say to people when they, when they say, yeah, me too. I'm like, oh yeah, were you and your friends like really unpopular and the, the popular kids made fun of you? They're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't have friends. <laughs> because no, and I, I just when you're like that and you have this like extreme need to express yourself, I just when I was 16, I just started writing stand up and I started doing open mics at 17. And the fact that like strangers really liked me was a big wake up call. Mm-hmm. That, you know that when it's people who are, who don't know who I am, they think what I'm saying is really interesting and funny. You know, as when I'm this child on stage, you know, was a was a major thing for me and how how much happiness and power I could get that I was missing in my life and the, you know, cause when you're a comic, your mainlining approval and happiness, you're forcing large groups of people to like you at once because you need it. Yeah. That's a great way to put it, man. And so that's why at 17 I was doing, you know, open mics and, you know, doing comedy in college. And that was what the most important thing to me was because you just, you need that feeling and you're usually doing comedy because you're lacking something important, you know, yeah and usually you're lacking it because you also have ego problems and you expect more attention and adoration than you should have i i can't i can't deny any of that yeah yeah i remember i remember shortly after i started i didn't start comedy until i was in like my 30s i didn't really get serious about it until i was in my 30s but i remember saying to a friend of mine like no, the fact that I'm starting this, this this is not like a good indicator for me having a lot of mental health. I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is not great news. You know, as a guy who was hosting open mics at 18, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed studying the people who really just should not be doing it. Like the mm-hmm. people who are just basically relitigating their divorce or... <laughs> trying to or have these delusions of grandeur that they think that the whole world should worship them and they don't understand why no one is 
you know, it, it's essentially becomes just a soapbox for people who there's no one else on earth will listen to. But of course, this is before Twitter. Yes, of course. All right, so um, so you started in uh, you're you're from New York, right? You started in the New York, New Jersey yeah. area. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, I remember like going to open mics. You you see some, you see a lot of interesting folks. I'll say like a lot of people who just want to be heard and they don't even maybe even care about getting a laugh. They just need to talk to somebody. And it's just like, yikes. Yeah, I mean, uh, God, and, and and when I started the open mics I was doing a lot of those people became famous. A lot of those people became giant successes and, and the others just didn't. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, who did you see uh, starting up? Well, I mean, when I was doing open mics, the people who were in my open mic regularly were Big J Okerson, Kurt Metzger, and Jamie Kilstein. Wow. Oh, all right. And I was friends with uh, those guys back at that point. I was like 18, 19, 20. Oh, far out. Wow. Yeah, those are, yeah Okerson's hilarious. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Big J. I mean, Big J would have been the one who had the you know the most high profile career, but Kurt obviously also you know yeah became very you know successful. Yeah, right. Right, famous Schumer and whatnot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so as you're doing uh you know open mics in the, in the New York scene, like how do you make the transition from uh, stand up to being a writer? Like, have you always uh, wanted to do that, or is it something that kind of came naturally? Like I. I yeah, I always intended on uh, on writing and not just doing stand up because I never really thought of myself as like that charismatic a character. I never thought that my end game would be just being a touring headliner. I thought it's really a way of getting into making comedy. So by the time I was in, starting college, I was doing sketch comedy as well as stand up and writing and drawing a comic strip and doing even then a version of the Brickstone videos where I'm harassing people on the street. And this was in 97 when I started doing that. Um, So so at a time where I was doing something at that time that was basically what would later be called by Jimmy Kimmel, the lie witness news. I did literally that exact bit years before Jimmy Kimmel was doing that, um, where I would lie to people as a reporter to see if I could trick them. And that's where the first Brickstone video started. So yeah, I was always trying to do lots of different ways of doing comedy. Uh, when I first got out of college, I did this comedy album with Joe Conti, this sketch album. Hey, Joe Conti, friend of the show. Joe Conti. Uh, Joe Conti actually also has a uh, show on uh, the Nonproductive uh, Podcast Network. He does a show about the Honeymooners. Yeah, and he also has his other show, Conti and Kenny, which mm-hmm. was once called The Bag of Nuts Show, which was the sketch group sort of that we made an album with. Uh, as. Ah, Mm. It all comes together. Hated the name. <laughs> Bag of nuts. I I can see why. I hate, hated it. Yeah. Our album was called Our album was called Sticking Together. Bag of nuts sticking together. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I get it. It's I uh. I don't. I don't want to. I want to be clear. I did not have creative control over anything in that album. <laughs> I will not be held responsible for what's in that. Oh boy! <laughs> so it sounds like if there's one thing that you wish you could be buried with, it would be that album, right? <laughs> um, yeah, let's say yes, because otherwise I'd have to say what the real answer is. <laughs> oh boy! All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, so what? Well, actually, what college did you go to? So Syracuse. Oh, Syracuse. Okay. All right. So is that so you've been writing? You've been um, you've like was the dream always to be like a writer on a TV show? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, something like that. I wanted to just, I mean, 
something like The Daily Show or a sitcom or something of that nature. I mean, I, I wanted to be a writer for The Daily Show since it was a new show. That's the mm-hmm. sort of thing I felt like I should do. And, 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 and to this day, my, what I'm best at is short form joke writing, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's apparent because you also kind of made a name for yourself in the, uh, the roast battle scene too as well. Yeah, no, I've done a lot of roast battles. And it started out um, with writing for the Justin Bieber roast. That was the first time I got to do something like that where because I was friends with Pete and uh, we wrote uh, the Justin, we wrote the jokes for his Bieber roast. And so about half the jokes you would see there uh, were mine. And it went you know, better than I expected where like a bunch of people were pitching him jokes, but only mine were, were staying in the lineup because of how they were doing when we would, when we would run them at comedy clubs. So after that, uh, roast battle was a couple of years old, maybe a year or two old. Uh, yeah, maybe just one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like maybe a year or two old. And then I did my first roast battle right before I joined SNL. And then it was something that I would just sort of do when I had time. Uh, first one at the comedy store, the original, and then later at both the stand Roastmasters and the New York Comedy Club roast battle. So it was, yeah, it, it just, it, it, it worked for my kind of writing because you don't have to be as much of a performer. It's really more about the joke you write and mm-hmm. just the, the natural inclination to insult people just kind of worked for how I was writing. I mean, it certainly it, it was certainly lined up with the Brickstone videos I was doing. The fact that I was really into roast comedy. I've always been into roast comedy. I've always really loved doing roasts. But I was glad that I could finally actually use that for something. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, go ahead, Darren. Oh well, no, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, I mean, just uh, I just know, like, with roast battles, that like writing a roast joke, a good roast joke, is a real, is a very particular skill that, like, I don't seem to have. Like, my jokes kind of. Uh, you know, I got to kind of meander a little bit more, but to just to have a setup punch and just get to it, like within a matter of a few minutes, it's like, really, I mean, it takes, it, it takes a lot of precision to do something like that. Like, I mean, how do you, how did you approach it? Like, is there, do you have like a certain way, way to, that you do that? Um, basically with a roast, I would just look at the person you're roasting and you would just say, well, what is a reasonable thing to make fun of this person for? And then mm-hmm. you start thinking of that terms. And then it's also about just getting as much general information about the character as possible so that you can basically start sentences and then finish them as a joke. So you say something that's true about the person and then see where that can lead you. Like if mm-hmm. you say, well, the person's mother works at a Walmart. And then you just start looking at every word in that sentence. Is there that's something it. That's a joke right that? there. <laughs> yeah, you say, what can I do with that? What what is a detail? Because you're just trying. It's it, you know, jokes like that are just sort of these little riddles, you know, where that you're supposed where you don't where it makes sense to you when you hear the last word of it. Mm, yeah, that's that's interesting. Do you do you find it easier to write a roast joke if you know the target well, or if you don't know the target personally? The less information you have, the worse. I've had roast battles where the other person basically refused to give me information about themselves, and mm-hmm. it the show itself suffers. Yeah. So you know, it's a lot easier with a celebrity when there's a lot of information. Like the easiest roast battle I ever did was against Christian Finnegan because he actually has a real career. There was a lot of information about him out there that I could take advantage of. But when it's someone with basically no career and nothing in their life you're you're stuck there's nothing to grab onto there's nothing to talk about yeah yeah 
Okay. Uh, well, now you mentioned that um, you were writing on the Justin Bieber roast with uh, Pete Davidson. So how did you how did you know Pete? Just through the open mic scene? No, no. Uh, Pete and I did a VFW show when he was eighteen. Uh, that a friend of ours, Matt, had uh, organized. We were both friends with him. And then a few months later, we you know we met there. And then Pete was in L.A. and uh, he didn't really know anyone there. Was filming something and. Our friend suggested I, you know, we meet up because, you know, just maybe show him around. And he was, you know, he was very young, didn't really know anyone. So we just hung out a little bit and really got along. And uh, just soon after that, we started trying to write stuff together. We wrote a couple of things that uh, did very, that, that got a lot of traction and would have been made had he not been hired by SNL shortly after that. So after that, he gets hired by SNL. He gets asked to do the Bieber roast. Uh, I started helping him with jokes for it. And like I said, other comics, you know, more known comics would also offer jokes and then he would go to the cellar and he would run all the roast jokes and record it. And then that was what the real surprise was for me is that like my jokes just seemed to be the ones that were working. And so the, the, the act ended up being top loaded with my jokes and, hmm. I, and it really, and it's also why SNL was interested in letting me write a packet because they were very happy that I made him look good at that roast. Because he, he was still fair, a fairly new cast member at that time, right? Yeah, he was a brand new cast member. I mean, that happened in March of his first year. Okay. So it happened, you know, a little more than midway through his first season. And, you know, so the jokes that me and him wrote, because uh, it ended up being about half mine and like almost half his. And it was just basically, you know, it went, it, it went really well. And uh, it proved that I should be writing on that level, basically, mm-hmm. for people that to give me a chance to. And and another interesting thing about writing roast jokes is they're so specific, you can only use them for that one event. Like like you were saying, Pete was road testing the jokes a little bit at, at clubs and stuff, but really they don't have a life beyond that roast. No, no. Uh, when you do a roast or a roast battle, that's the one time you do it. Now that being said, if I do a roast battle, I you know I I'll be very clear. I have every right to use that joke however I want ever again. Like, because right. there have been plenty of roast battles that I've done. And then if you would see me do that roast battle, you might then notice someone doing the same joke on a roast later. Like, uh-huh. for example, the, uh, the Alec Baldwin roast. There were multiple jokes in that roast that originated as things I had said in roast battles that I then sold to someone who was in that show. Gotcha. So there is that level of it. There's the, at least. Mm hmm. Well, I mean, it's like, it's like that old saying, like, you know, a good writer never throws anything away. And if you, if you have something that works or that can be retrofitted to work for that topic, it would be silly not to use it in some fashion. I mean, a roast battle is such a small stakes thing. It's just for one live audience and a YouTube page. Of course, I'm going to want to use that for a bigger audience if I can. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. All right, so um, so I guess after all this, um, you were able to submit a packet to uh, SNL, and and you you were able to uh, have a writing uh, gig there. You were there the forty first season, right? It's like twenty fifteen. Yeah, the twenty fifteen sixteen. I was there for the entire presidential primary, which was a a very fortunate time to be working there because uh, as a sketch writer, um, what I was best at was in terms of sketches was clearly just the cold open type stuff. The 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 current events comedy, uh, much more so than the regular sketches. So I was really happy that I was able to contribute a lot of stuff to things like the uh, the debates and and uh, pre- all the presidential, the Trump, the Bernie, the Hillary stuff. 
Okay, right, right. And, like another notable thing about uh, season 41 is that is uh, the season where Donald Trump hosted. He sure um, did. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just guessing. I'm just throwing this out there. You might have some stories from that week. <laughs> Well, the uh, I do. I can tell. I mean, I know that I signed an NDA, which I have no idea how much that's going to be enforced. But, okay. Uh, but so I can't talk about anything that happened that week. So I'm just going to talk about a hypothetical version of what happened that week that I would assume is true, based sure. on you know just whatever fantasy I have. Uh, first of all, you know how tall Pete is, right? Uh, he is a tall fellow. I don't know his exact height, but yeah. He's like six, six, two or something. He's just six, three. He just okay. hit six, three. Wow. So I got this. And, and Donald Trump, of course, is also six, three, according to his medical records. Right. Of right. Course, hypothetically, if I had seen them standing side by side, I'd think, wow, one of you is three inches taller than the other. Hmm. Hmm. And I'd also but imagine that Trump leans forward a lot, so I'm, I'd imagine it's really tough to gauge his height properly. Well, I mean, that's that's simply because the man has trouble standing. Yes, uh, <laughs> I, I would also say that it's you know he he if I had to guess, he seems like the kind of person who, as you're describing the kind of sketch you want to do, uh, doesn't have the ability to focus on anything anyone is saying and changes the subject to brag about things, not because he's a narcissist. Because he lost his train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> that is, wow, that's an interesting take. Uh, also, I bet he's someone who actually thinks that the war on Christmas is a new idea that would make a great idea for a sketch. Oh, yeah, sure. That's unmined comic territory there. <laughs> that in 2015, that was some novel new idea that maybe he even came up with. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think he was the originator of that. Sure, and I you know I also feel like Donald Trump's the kind of person who, if during the dress rehearsal of the episode, while he was watching himself on the monitor dancing to the Hotline Bling song, that if you walked up behind him to show him a change in a script, uh, even though he was a hundred percent alone and thought there was no one behind him you could still hear him speaking to himself while watching himself on camera go, wow, I was really good here. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. And you oh. know for a fact that he wasn't saying it for anyone else because it's too dark and too loud for him to have any idea that someone was standing right behind him to show him the changes uh, to one of the sketches that he was going to be in. <laughs> I I can't. I just can't. I mean, uh, we should say though that we we here at the SNL nerds we have no idea if any of these stories are true. This is just this is just a hypothetical thing on a host who may or may not have been Donald Trump. Who knows? Well, no. I mean, obviously, it's not true. I'm making all this up. I'm just using sure. educated guesses to tell you what working with him might be like. Uh, right. Because personally, I, I was checked out all week. I didn't really uh, pay attention to anything. Uh, now, now you said you had to sign an NDA uh, for when Trump hosted. Is that a standard part of SNL uh, hosts, or is that was that something special for when he came no, on? No, no, the standard SNL NDA that you sign. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Of not, you know, revealing, uh, you know, in, embarrassing things about anyone. I have no idea how it's how uh, it, you know specific it really is, but yeah, there's definitely right. definitely definitely sign something. 
<laughs> All right. I mean, but it can't, you know, there has to be some sort of time limit or it can't be that binding because I, I remember like Tina Fey saying that Paris Hilton was a piece of shit on the Howard Stern show. So, oh, right. yeah. I mean, have you ever heard of the Steven Seagal stories for God's sake? Oh, oh yeah. God. Absolutely. I mean, the, the live from New York book, the oral history of SNL, which we've referred to a ton of times on the show, that's it's filled with all these great stories. And and it's great because like every generation has their own story of what an asshole Chevy Chase was. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, undeniable, apparently. Uh, there, there's some amazing stories. I actually once interviewed Julia Sweeney and I brought up the Steven Seagal thing because I just wanted to know what he did. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, she explained that basically he didn't understand jokes at all, and he thought that like a sketch was just a snippet from a movie. Like he just wanted to get into fights and be cool, and he couldn't even deal with like they wanted to do a Hans and Franz sketch where Hans and Franz make fun of him for being puny, and then he beats them up, and that was too much. That was too disrespectful. He's like, no, wow. we can't have them saying I'm puny. Even if I do beat him up, like he just is someone who did not understand the concept of jokes at all. And wow. if you look at him in Russia now with these people pretending to be hit by him and these sad little displays, you can see, you know, this is a guy who's very not aware of what's going on. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Holy moly. <laughs> well, okay. So we, we, we talked about Donald Trump. Who, who were some of your favorite hosts? From from that year, from that season, um, I thought Miley Cyrus was really cool. She was really uh-huh. nice. Um, she was very cool to work with. Uh, Drake was ve- was was a super nice guy. It was he was really cool. Um, very open to doing everything. Chris Hemsworth was also a good example of someone who was just here to work. Just he just le- just happy, down to do whatever, open for such a big star. Uh, really really fun guy. Um, I thought Elizabeth Banks was really cool. Um, yeah, just a lot of people. I mean, I got to work with uh, with Peter Dinklage. Uh, not much. I didn't get to do much with him. Uh, was that was that when he played uh, Peter Drunklage on Weekend Update? I don't. Oh, he was like a drunk uncle, but like the, the smaller version. I don't. Yeah. I don't remember uh, if okay. he was on that update. But uh, but yeah, I mean, he was really funny. Um, yeah, there was there were a lot of uh, of great moments. Drake hired Bobby Flay to cook us dinner. I mean, that was oh. Really cool. Shit, and, and then had that's a, cool. I think he and then he had like a he got us an after after party with at like an arcade with strippers. I mean, the guy was really knows how to how to treat people. Um, oh damn, Tracy, Tracy Morgan, of course, was a uh, was a really really awesome person to get to to sit down and and talk comedy with and stuff. So yeah, there were a lot there were a lot of people that were really awesome, really good, to, really cool to work with. Oh man, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. I got to see Nicki Minaj really up close. Oh, was that? I got to see Nicki Minaj like a few feet away. Oh, how was how was I that? I mean, shocking to be. It's just I never thought I'd get to see her that close. It was really <laughs> she's yeah she's very pretty. <laughs> she's easy so, on the eyes. I feel like overall, the good experiences outweighed the bad. Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, if if I'm misrepresenting your time on the show. Look, I have benefited an enormous amount from my time on SNL. Without mm-hmm. SNL, I'm sure I never would have written for heroes of mine like Robert Smigel, gotten to do a movie with Judd Apatow, uh, gotten to do basically everything that I that I ever dreamed of doing. 
all of it I have from SNL. So to answer your question, does that make up for everything? Yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you, you mentioned Robert Smigel. So, like, how did – I guess you just got in with him on because you wrote you for the uh, Triumph, the uh, Insult Comic Dog. Yeah, you got that right, through after, right after that season of SNL ended, I wrote my first blind packet, my first just regular packet just sent to a show, and uh, it was for his Hulu special, and I got that job somehow. And it was a, just an amazingly great experience getting to write for Triumph about the election. It was just a perfect, perfect place for me to be uh, and an opportunity for me to actually do what was right for me and exactly what I was best at. Uh, and that, yeah. and, and that Hulu special that, and the series that came after it, I mean, I'm still really, really proud of that. It was amazing to get to watch Smigel work and the stuff we I – mean, definitely, you should definitely check it out. It's, it's some of the – it's some of the best political comedy I've ever seen. Some of the the guy, what the guys on that show were capable of. Okay, no, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, we'll check it out. So, I mean, I guess I was wondering also, like, do you, were you able to kind of, I guess, write, like, were you able to like sort of write for Triumph, like, because uh, I mean, tr- the dog he has like his own kind of special voice, his very particular type of you know style of comedy. So, how was it just writing for you know somebody else like that? Not hard. Uh, I, I, I think the reason that I've continued to write for Triumph uh, since is because it just it came off very very easy to just match that style. I mean, the videos that I was doing before this, the Brickstone videos, it's a fairly similar kind of writing. So yeah. it was very similar to what I was already doing, and it just it fit the kind of way that I write jokes. So it just it, it there was really no there wasn't much adaptation. I think that Smigel likes the way I write jokes for triumph. And I think that like I, the kinds of jokes that I write for triumph are, uh, definitely one of the, one of the specifics you think of for him, the kind of overly written, uh, like gotcha joke, like and that the, and that he, the ability to kind of like, I just, I just feel like I love triumph so much because he was already in a style that I really spoke that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you probably grew up watching him too, so you kind of knew exactly, you know, his style, and you just yeah. had to be able to hone in on that. Yeah, I mean, I love Triumph and I love TV Funhouse, so I just I felt like if I can't get this job, there's nothing I'm going to get. <laughs> I really felt like it was like because I because I didn't get it at first, just because they were delayed in making their decision. So I thought I didn't get it, and I thought if I can't get this, I am screwed. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I've been training for my entire life. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. The whole life's been leading up to this moment. All right. And uh, so now you have uh, this movie coming out, The King of Staten Island. And uh, this is the first movie you've ever written, correct? The first movie that's gotten made. It's gotten made. Right. Me and Pete have written a few movies already uh, that didn't get produced. This is the first one actually went all the way to that. Okay. So, I mean, so how did this come about? How did you get into, I don't know, how did you get into uh, co-writing this script? Before Pete was on SNL, me and him wrote a script together. Uh, first, we wrote a com- first we wrote a Comedy Central web series that they liked and was going to get made, uh, except that there were complications with just with just contracts that made it delayed long enough that when he got SNL that canceled it. So in the meantime, we we actually wrote a movie together that uh, we were trying to sell, and we and uh, Judd read the script because he knew Pete from Trainwreck. And he said, oh, I like this. How about the three of us write a movie together? And we mm-hmm. 
started talking about that. And of course, all that got canceled when Pete joined SNL, just a huge opportunity. So a, a year or two late. So yeah, about a year after that, we started talking again about another movie. And that one was going to be about a gap year. And basically just because of various other projects, it, it didn't really get anywhere. And so we didn't do that. And then Pete and I moved on to another script that we wrote, we wrote ourselves uh, that was originally going to be for Warner Brothers. And that script also did not get made. But Judd read that script and said, oh, I really like this. I like that you guys – this is my favorite of the things you've written so far. Let's – now that we're all, we all have time, let's get back to writing something together. And this time, Judd was like, instead of just giving you an idea and just having you run with it, let's actually start from scratch – and build a movie together and really use Pete's real life to just really get a, an emotionally real uh, basis for this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So this is something that's kind of been in the works for, for a while. Yeah. This is, I mean, this was the third uh, movie that we discussed doing. So like, you know, we, we'd work together, we'd, we'd, you know, but, and this was the first time that we all had time and that we could devote to it and that it actually could could get all the way done and it did and and it was it was better because it wasn't it wasn't you know trying to adapt to a story it was about saying no 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 let's let's adapt the story to us let's let's make a movie where we're not faking emotions let's actually use what we have here which is you know a very very interesting story a background of Pete and just let's run with it let's let's see if we can make a story that will appeal to anyone else who deals and has dealt with the kinds of, uh, of issues Pete has and, and, and had to, you know, ha- had to deal with loss in the way Pete has. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and, and that seems to be like a really interesting thing about the movie is there is a, there are a lot of autobiographical elements in there from Pete's life because Pete, Pete's dad was a firefighter. This is like, I think fairly well known. His, he was a firefighter who, who died on nine 11 and Pete's character in, in this movie, his his father was a firefighter who who died in a fire. Right. We didn't want to make it uh, a nine eleven specific movie because that's mm-hmm. such a well. Because then you have a when you if you if you were to bring that into it, then there's all this other sort of uh, things you need to serve. And you know, the last thing we wanted to do was make it seem like we were exploiting nine eleven in any way. We would never do something like that. It was more about uh, you know just can we tell a story that's that's personal that's true to what happened, but doesn't have the specter of this historical tragedy sort of weighing it down in the sense of like, because if you do a 9-11 movie, you can't just change details to right. the story. And it, it, it creates a different level of responsibility. And, you, and, and it's hard to talk about a subject like that because it's so hard to know when you're being respectful in the right way, it just seemed better to just, no, let's just make this about this one family. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way that anyone who did lose someone would still be able to, uh, you know, identify with, but just there, but to me it was also a very interesting idea of it's not that different for the person who suffered the tragedy, but it's very different for everyone on the outside when it's a famous tragedy. And, right. and, and, and does it make you feel different about it when it's not something that was in the news every day? And if so, why? So it, just, yeah. it was just interesting questions that were brought up. And we just wanted to make a story that sort of rhymed with the true emotions of things without being the real story. Yeah. And, and you've got a, a killer cast in this movie, too. I mean, uh, 
And one thing I find really interesting is uh, like Steve Buscemi is in the movie mm-hmm. and he, Steve Buscemi was also a firefighter in real life. And he famously went to his old uh, uh, firehouse on nine 11 to help out how he could. Yeah, he did. Um, that was a big part of it for us, you know, because of that, you know, Pete just has such an enormous amount of respect for Steve. So, you know, it was, it was, it was a real honor for him to, to do this for us. You know, it was a really favor that he did uh, being in this movie. Um, so that was, yeah, that was really amazing. And that's why other people in the cast, other firemen in the, in the cast are real firemen. Several of mm-hmm. them are at are basically we were looking for firefighters who are also actors because firefighting, uh-huh. a lot of firefighters have like a side hustle. And, yeah. uh, you know, one of them, John Sorrentino was a good friend of Scott's of Pete's dad. And right. he, when, when, when Pete's dad was, was around, uh, John was the, you know, the guy in the firehouse who wanted to be an actor. So there was a lot that was really, we wanted to show a lot of respect for these people, these first responders, people who, who put themselves in harm's way. And, uh, you know, it's, that's so, so anytime we were able to have someone be portrayed by someone who did know firsthand what it was like, that was a plus. We also spent a lot of time with firemen in firehouses you know, it was just there was a certain level of responsibility that we really had to had to show because mm-hmm. you know, we're telling their story. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I wonder if I, I think my dad might actually watch this movie too because, like, I mean, I don't know. I think we mentioned this on the podcast, but my dad's actually he was a firefighter as well. Like he he actually worked in like uh, Ladder One Eighteen in Brooklyn Heights, uh, which I believe was uh, Pete's dad's um, old ladder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brooklyn Heights. That's yeah, that is where uh, Pete's father was stationed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I gotta ask my dad see if he knows any of these uh, any of the actors here. Um, yeah, actually, you should ask if he knows John. Yeah, we'll do. All right, that's wow. Small world. Yeah. And, and wow. Like the the movie also stars uh, Bill Burr. Was that was Bill somebody you knew from the stand up world beforehand? Pete did. Uh, I didn't know okay. Bill. But uh, Bill was one of the people that we very early on thought was one of the best case scenarios for who would play uh, this character. So uh, Bill, you know, we brought Bill in and uh, his screen test was just so perfect that, you know, we were very, very happy with. And we were like, like, thank God that it all happened the way we wanted to, because he was always just at the top of the list of Uh what was perfect for this. And, And also because people just really unaware of just how good an actor he is. He's his acting is really shocking. He's so in the moment, uh, and and is able to play off of Pete in such a in such a professional way for someone who's you know known as being a stand up. It was really really great to see. That's that's really cool. I mean, I've I've enjoyed seeing Bill uh, Burr do what little straight acting I've seen him do, like mostly in like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and stuff like that. And he's I know never, he's also in The Mandalorian. I don't think he's ever been on Saul. Oh, I thought he. I thought he'd come on uh, Saul, but maybe I'm mistaken on that. Maybe but, I'm uh, wrong. I've been waiting. Yeah. I thought I was waiting for him to come on Saul, but yeah, Mandalorian. He's just so he takes it serious. He takes it very seriously. He's not one of these comics that's just kind of trying to you know do his act on you know on a set. He is a very serious actor, and people are going to be, I think, very blown away by just how ready for uh, the big screen he was. That's really cool. I, I just looked it up. It doesn't look like he has done any episodes of Better Call Saul. But Shockingly like, every, enough. I don't know. He's the only yeah. one left. I know. Everybody yeah. else from Breaking Bad has shown up, it seems, except uh, you know for the two main guys, of course. But uh, I, am, 
I am getting pissed off that we haven't seen Skinny Pete yet. Yeah, yeah. But that's the only but, other one. Okay. <laughs> the, the, they'll get to him eventually, I'm sure. Right. I mean, but that, that's half the fun of that show is just the, the cool and unexpected ways they find to bring people in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you were able to get, uh, for the film, you were able to get Marissa Tomei. Like, uh, and she amazing. was also someone. We, we kept thinking about this role of his mother, and it's sort of from the very beginning, our attitude was, is there anyone besides Marissa Tomei who can do this? Like we, kept, <laughs> we like we automatically said Marissa Tomei, and then it just became a thing of well, we can't just have one person. We need to have options, and it was just it was so difficult thinking of anyone else that could play this part. Mm. And um, she is. I mean, the thing with Marissa Tomei though is you expect her to be great, and she yeah. is. And you know, it just it, it's really it's really great watching such a just such a competent creative actor just able to take any line and make it better and uh i mean she's so professional and so just it, it like it, she was you know obviously the most uh, accomplished actor you know we had in the in, in at the top so yeah it, marissa tomei was just amazing it was so nice of her to, to take this and to to play pete's mom and uh really i just i can't i can't even imagine who else could have done it that's so cool. So, I mean, it sounds like you're really happy with how the movie turned out. Yeah. No, I, I look, it's, it, it was Judd's ship to run. I was really, I know, obviously the three of us wrote it together, uh, but it was all with the trust in Judd that he could, you know, pull it all together as director. And I, I think he, he really did an impressive job of doing something that I think is unlike, you know, any other movie people have seen. It's, it's not, it doesn't follow the kind of formula that, that these movies, you know, that you tend to expect. And I just, you know, it was, I, I got to learn a lot just from doing storytelling with Judd because, you know, I, like I said, I consider myself mostly a joke writer. And mm-hmm. uh, while I love a lot of the jokes that I got in the movie, you know, what I'm really most proud of is that we pulled together this very coherent, cohesive, disciplined kind of story uh, that didn't just, you know, seem like someone trying to mash a bunch of stuff together. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. That's what a comedy writer wants to do. You want to just have a joke delivery system and just and and just oversaturate with dick jokes. And you know, yeah. this is too sensitive a story to do that. So right, you have to have the right. discipline of having to be funny in a very very uh, honest way. Yeah, you're as as like a stand up comic or writing for a roast battle or something. You're not really used to picking your moments for the dick jokes. <laughs> right. Right. You know, if it, if this was left to me and Pete's devices, you know, this movie would just be loaded and loaded with jokes, constantly breaking fourth walls. That's, uh-huh. where, that, that's where we would end up if we, you know, didn't have any sort of direction and we're just sort of going crazy with, 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 with writing, you know, comedy wise. And you can't do that in a movie. Movies have to be a lot more disciplined than that. You can do that with TV, but movies right. have to have a very straight line of what's going on. You can't, break the audience's uh connection to the fiction of what's happening right right that's that's a great way to put it too well i mean the the movie is if in in case people don't know it's it's coming to on demand on this coming friday uh june the 12th uh i'm not sure when exactly we're going to be releasing this episode but it will be hopefully shortly before June 12th. So, uh, and we're going to cover the movie on the podcast uh, in a couple weeks, I believe, is the plan right now. Yeah. 
So we're and we're both really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw the the trailer, I was like, I was really blown away just because I, I had heard a lot about the movie coming up, and I was like, um, I don't know, it, it, it sounded interesting, but like once I saw exact like the vision and just like how how you know how funny Bill Burr was and how you know the acting like Pete was doing, and like once I got the tone and the vibe of it, I was like, oh wow, this is this looks really good. I really want to see this. Well, thank you. I really, really hope you still think that after the movie. I just really, <laughs> really want you to like this movie. I, I can't explain how much I need for that to happen. Well, Dave, as we said before we started recording, if the check clears, we will <laughs> to to give this movie the SNL nerds bump and uh, you know give it give it a bigger, uh, nice review. No, I'm sure I'm sure we're really going to like it. I mean, Judd Apatow seems to really have a good eye for good people to build a movie around. I mean, he, he had, you know, Steve Carell for the 40 year old virgin. He had uh, Seth Rogen for knocked up. He had Amy Schumer for train wreck. He really seems to have an eye for like developing talent or talents that's breaking or just about to break that he can build a movie around. I mean, the guy knows what he's doing. He really, yeah. uh, he, he approaches comedy in such a serious way. He approaches making a comedy movie with that kind of artist's, passion like like the idea that like he he's just he really really want like he's i I know i'm not saying this right but like he looks at a story with the kind of reverence you need to be able to make good movies he really cares about that on a level that i know there's other people there who are just like just get it done have some jokes in it he is he is living and breathing the universe that he's creating and that you know it's showing us that you know you have to have this extreme amount of respect for the material and for the reality that you're creating and not defy that and not not be dishonest in in anything that these characters are doing but yet still somehow make it compelling and funny Mm. yeah he i mean i mean apatow he's i mean he's somebody who had an amazing career before he became a movie director i mean just like all the shows that he's written for and became been involved with like, you know, freaks and geeks, uh, the Larry Sanders show, the, yeah. uh, he worked on the Ben Stiller show, didn't he? Oh yeah. 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 Which I, I mean, as a kid, I was a big Ben Stiller show fan. So um, underrated. Yeah. Yeah. Such really, really great. I mean, undeclared. The, yeah. I believe he wrote on the critic. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, I he, mean, and he was the head writer of the last season of Larry Sanders, which is Larry Sanders is just one of the most important comedies of all time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's that's just wonderful, and yeah, I mean, I mean, and he's he's just had an amazing career even before the movies. If you just take the movies out of the equation, he's he's done amazing stuff. And I know, like, he started he he did like a radio show when he was in high school, just interviewing all sorts of people in comedy. Yeah, yeah, he started really young, and uh, yeah, he's the amount of important comedy that Judd's fingerprints are on is like staggering. People don't even remember how many, cause they, we think of the directing ones. You forget how many things he produced that are some of the greatest comedies ever too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. Good job hitching your wagon to that star. <laughs> well done, sir. Hey, you know, I got, I got, to, I got real lucky getting to work with him yep. and Smigel. You know, it's like, if it, it's for someone who failed longer than any sane person would hold out, I got really lucky at the end. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I mean, hopefully this is not the end for you. Hopefully this is the start of a whole new 
career for you, in a whole, or a whole new phase of your career. We'll see. Yep. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Here's hoping. All right. So, uh, Dave, thank you so much for for doing this for with us. Like, this oh, was an amazing you, interview. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Anything to plug? Anything to promote? Uh, yeah, please. The floor's yours. Uh, like I said before, uh, I. I, I, it's not, I feel like it's just a dumb time to, you know, promote yourself. I think if, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I, you know, why go to, go to campaign zero or, uh, or unicorn riot or something, you know, you, my, my Twitter will be there <laughs> afterward. All right. Yeah. Go, go there guys. Go, go do that. And, well, uh, you may, you may feel self-conscious about promoting it, but, but we do not. So everybody, you know, go, Check out the King of Staten Island on demand this Friday, June twelfth, and it'll be hopefully it'll be a nice uh, outlet for you know what's a, what's a trying time in the real world right now. Yes, yes, just, uh, priorities. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, watch the movie, then donate to some important charities. You'll yeah. feel good. You'll feel both of the things will make you feel good. Yeah, hey, let's hope. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. Yes. Look, there's room in the world for all kinds of things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's make sure that, you know, all the work we're doing uh, goes towards some good changes. Yes. Fingers crossed, man. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yes. Among other things. Oh, huh? (laughs) Okay. All right, and yeah, that's our podcast, guys. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for listening. And uh, as always, if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Darren Credible, D A R I N Credible. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Trumbull Comic, T R U M B U L L, and the word comic. And uh, Dave, I know you're on Twitter as well. Where can the folks find you? Uh, just Dave Cyrus, S I R U S. All right, nice, simple handle. Nice. Simple and direct. Yes, yep, just the name, then the and, 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 name. Yeah, and and check out Dave's uh, Brickstone videos as well. We didn't uh, talk too much about those, but those are something to say. Yeah, thanks. someday I'll get. I'll do them again someday. I promise. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, thanks, and uh, and uh, yeah, that's that, that's it for that's it for the podcast, guys. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, oh, follow us on Twitter at SNL Nerd Show. And yep. uh, yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be back soon, guys. And uh, until then, nerds out, nerds out, nerds out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.